must really fit here in, in Sheridan because I went to the rodeo this week and, uh, and I joined, enjoyed it thoroughly. I'd never been to a rodeo before. I've seen them on television and I realized you people are absolutely crazy up here. <laughs> How could you ever... I can't imagine doing what those people did. <laughs> what skill! It's stunning to me. Uh, but it was delightful to see so many crazy people out in a, in a field at the same time doing such extraordinary things. It's great to be a part of this wonderful, wonderful community. As you know, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, we have been uh, making our way slowly through what is the, called the uh, Epistle of Ephesians. Epistle just kind of means a, a long letter. And that's what it is. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul, written, oh, probably in the 50s or around the year 60, written to a group of people that he really, really loves because he planted this church in Ephesus, one of the biggest, um, biggest towns or cities in the whole world at the time. And uh, he spent three years there. And after he left that, he was put into prison for quite a number of years, and then he was eventually uh, executed. But while he was in prison, he wrote this incredible letter, the letter of Ephesians. I'd like to ask you a question as we begin uh, this morning. My question is this. Have, have, have you ever heard of the Pygmalion effect? Have you heard of the Pygmalion effect? Yeah, a number of you have. The Pygmalion effect is, is a phenomenon by which people will generally perform according to your expectations. Now, there's a, a contrary effect. It's called the Gollum effect. And the Gollum effect is, if your expectations are low, people will meet them. They will go low, but if your expectations are high, people will generally rise to your expectations. Um, it's been, the study has been done many times by going into a classroom of students, and if you tell them, you know, or tell certain students, you are really smart, you are gifted and talented, and guess what? They, they respond to that. They work harder, and they rise to the level that you expect of them. If, on the other hand, you say to somebody, you know, you're, you're good for nothing, you're never going to amount to much or anything in life, generally people will, will succeed in not amounting to much. Our, we tend to internalize the expectations that people have of us. I know they're working on trying to get these slides on there, but if they did right now, you'd see a picture of a cat looking into a mirror, and on the other side of the mirror is a lion. And along with it, sa it says, um, you know, it says people perform better or worse best based on the expectations of their supervisors or their teachers. And then you'd see a picture. And in this picture, you'd see a picture of a math, all the math equations on a blackboard. And in front of that is, is, is a girl, a schoolgirl. And uh, as you know, it's one of the phenomena in our culture today where if you tell somebody, uh, you know, girls can't do math, they don't do math well. But if you say, girls do math? Are you kidding? Girls are great at math. They tend to do much better at math. So here's, there they are. There's the math. Um, so today my goal is simple. I'm going to see if the Pygmalion effect works on you. 
So, my goal today is to raise our expectations. And in fact, stole this one obviously from literature class. Great expectations, because that's what God has of us as his children. So, our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. And it's all about God's expectations. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he's done for us. Now remember, the first half of this book or this letter is all about what God has put into us, what God has done for us, what God has made us to be. And then when we get to chapter 4, it began with now what does God expect of us in light of what he's given to us. So now, last week we talked about the fact that the first thing God wants of, of us as Christians is that we recognize how important it is that we are united together. But the next thing he's going to talk about is not our unity, but our individuality and how important that individuality is to the body of Christ. So look in your Bible, and we are going to speak about today great expectations. The first thing we're going to see is that um, every one of us, and by this I mean every one of us, by this I mean every one of us, you're going to see it, every one of us has been graced by God to serve. We've been given gifts to serve, and here's how the Bible says it. But to, I underlined it, you should underline it in your Bible, but to each one of us. Now remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to the rich and famous. He's not talking to all the people that have college and graduate degrees. He's talking to a bunch of normal people in the city of Ephesus, probably mainly on the lower side of the socioeconomic ladder. There are probably many slaves that he's writing this to. Many people, most of them are of the working class. There are a few who would have been higher class, but not many. He's talking to people who are both Jews and mainly Gentiles. And he says, to each of you, grace has been given according as God has apportioned it. Gifts, God, or not God, it says Jesus Christ. Christ has given us grace. Who? Every one of us. Grace to do what? That's what we're going to see next. The first thing we need to see is God has made an investment, a very important investment. It cost him his life. He made an investment in each one of us. What did he do? That's why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive in his train, led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this is, you can see, it's in quotation marks. That means it's a quote from the Old Testament. This is from the 68th Psalm, verse 18. And it's what it says. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, when a, um, a, in that society, when you went to war and you conquered a, a people, you plundered them, of course. You took all of their expensive items, you took their food, you took everything, you brought the captives back with you into your town in a triumphal procession, and then you, you distributed the, the spoils of war. Now that's one interpretation. But when you look at this psalm in Psalm 68, it's not talking about that kind of war, it's talking about how God 
has brought his law from Mount Sinai and then enshrined his law and his holy presence in the temple in Jerusalem. He, and of course, you go up to Jerusalem, you ascend on high. And it's probably speaking here about Christ's ascension. You put those all together, and it would say that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he finished his job here by ascending to heaven. And one of the things he did as a product of his grace is he gave gifts to us. To who? Who? Each one of us. Now, of course, that means the person next to you. That does not mean you. It means somebody else. But that's not what it means. He, Jesus, bestowed, purchased by means of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he procured by his grace gifts that he has given to each one of us. Now, what are these gifts? I happen to believe that the Bible doesn't give us a full list. They're probably greater, but the Bible does give us a list. And if you want to know where those lists are, there are two twelves and two fours. You look at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Those are the two twelves. And then Ephesians 4. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Ephesians 4. And, and the last one is 1 Peter chapter 4. There you get a, a list of maybe 20 different gifts that God has given to each one of us. We are given gifts. And it's probably much wider than this. And it's very, very broad. Now, one of the tendencies we have is we like to rank gifts. And we say, well, this gift is more important than this gift. And that is really wrong. The Bible warns us against doing that. And here's a practical ex explanation. Now, please, this is not a political statement. Um, what if right now as we leave church, we go home, we turn on the news, and it says, President Trump has been working so hard over the last few months, he's absolutely exhausted, and he has decided he is going to take six weeks off. What would happen to the United States of America? That's right. Nothing. Nothing would happen to the United States of America. The vice president would step in. All the bureaucracy would continue to operate just fine. Nothing would happen. Nothing would change. What if, on the other hand, you go home today, you turn on your television set, and it says, all the garbage collectors in the United States of America have said, we get no respect. We're taking six weeks off. What would happen to us? We're dead. We're all dead. <laughs> We all, we would die. And by the way, I, I lived in Houston, Texas for a while. They had to collect the, the garbage twice every week because it smells to high heaven. Hot and humid, everything decays. We'd be dead. But I, most people would put the garbage collectors on the low end of the scale and the president on the top. We'd get along fine without a president. But you get rid of the garbage collectors? Oh my, you're in trouble. Take it to the church. You see, if I don't come back from Longmont this week, guess what's going to happen next Sunday? Someone else is going to step up here and do a marvelous job preaching the Word of God. But what if next Sunday, all of our workers in the nursery right now say, you know, we're not, we're not going to work here anymore. I'm not going to take care of these babies. And so all those babies come right in here and start crying, screaming. <laughs> you see, you can, you see, that's, what, that's our problem. 
And in fact, the Bible says, when it comes to gifts, be sure you turn them upside down because you're going to get it wrong. You're going to put the wrong ones on top, and the ones you need most are actually the ones on the bottom or what you think is the bottom, but the bottom, that's not the bottom. Be careful of how you view gifts. He ascended on high. He led captives in his train, and he gave gifts to his men. Now, he's going to, this is a parenthesis. He's trying to explain. What does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. Now, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, last week at the end of the service, we recited the Apostles' Creed, and one of the statements in is that he descended into hell. That was one of the statements. Now, that most people would not think that this is a, a verse from which you would get that. You get that from other places in the scriptures. And people don't know exactly what it means, he who descended, but it, pro- it could mean that he spoke to the spirits, as the Bible says, in, the, in what would be called Hades or Sheol. But it also could mean he, he made quite a descent when he came to this earth. It's called the incarnation. Jesus made the ultimate descent that any human being has ever made. He descended to this earth. Can you imagine leaving the glories of heaven, the holiness, the perfection, the intimacy in heaven to come and join us? That's a real low blow. And he took that willingly to live among us, to be disgraced and disrespected among us, eventually be killed here, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven. I think this is the least thing you could say. Jesus paid a huge, huge, huge price in order to grace us with gifts. He paid a lot, an awful lot. Now, um, what are gifts? Gifts are not the same thing as talents and abilities or skills. They may, they probably will intersect, but they're not the same. A gift is something supernaturally given to us by God. And if you are truly a Christian, you have a supernatural endowment from God, no questions asked. Every single one of us does. There are no exceptions. Now, the purpose of these gifts that God has given to us is for us to help others. It's not a toy. Someone said this. Gifts are not toys to play with. Gifts are tools to build with. And if they are not used in love, they will become weapons to fight with. No, we don't use these to fight. We use our gifts to build up one another. So God went to incredible heights, Jesus did, and incredible depths to give us gifts of His grace. Now let me ask you some questions. Do you really believe that you have been gifted by God with gifts? Do you really believe that? Do you really think that your contribution to First Baptist Church and to the community of Sheridan is actually important. Do you really believe that? Do you really understand that it cost Jesus a lot to give that gift to you? Do you, has it ever crossed your mind that by not using your gifts, you're disappointing Jesus and by using them, You're pleasing Him. 
Has it ever crossed your mind that you may be stunting your own spiritual growth if you do not use your gifts? And you may be enhancing it if you do. Has it ever crossed your mind that by not using the gifts God has given you individually, you're hurting other people in this body. You're hurting them. That's what God says. Now, if you're a Christian, I know something about you you may not know about yourself. Namely, you are uniquely, you know what unique means? Unique, unique means you're the only one in the world. You are uniquely good at something. And that something is necessary for the health of this church. And I don't mean, I don't mean, well, you know how many I mean? Well, here, I'm going to introduce you to the Pareto Principle. Are you familiar with the Pareto Principle? It, it's, it's from a, an Italian economist. His name was Vilfredo Pareto. And he said that 20% of the input, time, resources, and effort, accounts for 80% of the output, results, and rewards. Now, how did he figure that out? Well, he, um, he, he had peas. <laughs> he had a bunch of pea pods. And he looked at his pea pods, and he realized that 20% of his pea pods gave him 80% of his peas. He said, Ooh, this, is, this is kind of uh, weird. And then he looked at the economics of Italy at the time, and he realized that all the, the 20% of the landowners, or 80% or, or of the land was owned by 20% of the people. And then... Microsoft recently stepped into the picture. And Microsoft realized that by fixing the 20, top 20% of reported bugs, 80% of the errors were fixed. And salespeople have realized that 80% of your sales come from only 20% of your clients. And guess what? In the U.S. healthcare system, 20% of the patients use 80% of the resources. And on and on it goes. And guess what's happened? We've done it in the church. But the Pareto principle was never meant to apply to the body of Christ. But this is what we found in the church. 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. So what the church has done is we have simply mimicked this horrible truth from our culture. And this is not the way it's supposed to be. If this is what happens, if we as a church follow the Pareto principle, we are by definition called disabled. Can you imagine if you had only 20% of my body operating? I hope you keep my head. <laughs> and maybe one arm. That's all I've got. I've got a head and an arm. The truth is about the body of Christ. We don't have a head. The head is our Lord Jesus Christ. But all the rest of the body. Can you imagine only 20% of my body operating? That's what we have. That's the church. That's the church. We follow the Pareto principle. 20% of the people do everything. And guess what that's called? That's called disabled. You can't be a church that way. And yet most churches are trying to operate that way. 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. No, that is not the word of God. The Word of God is 100% of the people are needed for a body of Christ to operate properly. That's how it's supposed to work. God has gifted all of us.
to serve. This is actually, um, it was popularized by um, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church out in California. He said, you know, we, uh, we have a shape, and that's where the S-H-A-P-E. God puts all these things together to make us who we are. And, and to make us serve in the way God gives us spiritual gifts. These are enablements from God's Holy Spirit to us. But then we also have heart, and, and, and we have certain things, we have passions, we have things that we love to do, and then there are abilities that we've either been given by birth or we've developed, and then we have a personality. Everyone's personality is different. And then we have all kinds of experiences. One of, for me, I've been incredibly shaped by my three years having lived in Africa. It shaped me greatly. It's an experience. It changed my life. But God has done this for all of us. I, I've been shaped. I've been changed by having had a daughter that has cancer, that had cancer. I, I didn't want that. It was horrible. But it shapes us. The bad things shape us. The good things shape us. The, the experiences in life. And God, in his infinite wisdom, takes all of these things and he, he weaves them together to make us who we are. And we're all gifted, every one of us. Now, there's a big danger here. Remember, there's a difference between spiritual gifts and family chores. For example, your mom or dad says, son, daughter, could you mow the lawn? No, it's not my gift. <laughs> I don't mow lawns. Son, daughter, would you please rinse the dishes? Oh, no, no, no. Have, do not have the gift rinsing gift. I don't have that gift. That's not one of my spiritual gifts. Ridiculous. No, no, those are not gifts. We don't care how much gifts, many gifts you have. That is a family chore. There are many, many things in the body of Christ. You don't need the spiritual gift to do it. You're simply part of the family, and there are things we do because we're part of the family. So don't use it as an excuse for doing nothing, that won't cut it. Certainly won't cut it with God. Well, all gifts are in a sense equal, but they're not the same. There's some gifts that God gives that he's going to tell us now are for the purpose of equipping. And here's what he says. It was he, who's he? Jesus. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now here's a list of gifts that we're going to see from the next verses are gifts that God has given to people to equip others to use their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Apostles. In the most technical sense, an apostle is somebody who had walked with the real Lord Jesus Christ, was taught by the real Lord Jesus Christ, and watched the real Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Those are the apostles, technically. Now, Paul includes himself in that because he said, I was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ when I was in the desert of Arabia. I have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I am an apostle, though they tried to, to, to say that he wasn't a real apostle. Technically, those are the apostles, and they're here today, by the way. Did you know they, they showed up here at First Baptist Church? And they showed up at Cornerstone, and they showed up at The Rock this morning. They're there. Here they are. There, this is... They're here. They're, they're right there. The apostles, they're the ones who wrote the New Testament for us. And so there's a sense in which we have them with us right now. Now, prophets. 
Now, when we think of prophets, we typically think of those who can foretell the future. And the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament can do that, to some, can do that but that is not their main task at all. Prophets in the Old Testament oftentimes spoke the will of God to people and in the New Testament, because remember, during the Bible times, the, the, Bible, the New Testament was not written. How was God going to communicate to his people? He communicated through prophets. Author, and of course, there's a danger with the prophets. The danger is that these people would be self-appointed prophets. That's why God says you need to test the prophets, because, and I think it's the same today, but the main task of the prophets in the Old Testament was to speak truth to powerful people. That was their main task. In fact, the prophets were best known to be people who pointed out the sin in people's lives, particularly the lives of the priests and the religious people. That's a very important task. Now, you can imagine if that's your job, it's a pretty bad job. It's a horrible job, and that's why they didn't like their job, and that's like Jeremiah said, oh, get me out of this job. I don't like it. It ends me in a pit. But then he said, but you know, there's something inside me that burns because God has put me in this position. And rather than deal, let my life burn away from the inside, I'll do what God has called me to do. It wasn't a real easy task, but God gave him an eye to see the sin in people's lives and especially in the lives of powerful people. And he called the truth the truth. And of course, they, and we have people here today. I mean, we have people in this world today who do that. Evangelists. An evangelist is someone who is a gospeler. They love the gospel. They love uh, to tell people about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that these are not just people who like to tell the gospel. These are people who help others to tell the gospel. And then there's uh, pastors. Pastor simply means a shepherd, someone who cares for God's sheep, and a teacher, obviously, someone who is gifted to 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 explain God's word. Now, here's their work. To prepare God's people, or it says to equip God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So that's the job of the equipper. The equipper is like a player coach. Uh, an equipper is somebody who, who's in, in the game with everybody else doing what God has called us to do, but our job is to help other people to do their job as well as possible to the glory of God, to motivate people, to encourage them, to show them how, to do it with them. That's the job of, of an equipper. That's the job of a person who would be called a, a pastor and a teacher. Now, let me highlight what this text does not say. It does not set up two categories, clergy and laity. It does not suggest a hierarchy of gifts. That is not true. The text does not say that teachers or equippers are better or more useful than those who are equipped. It does not say that. Now, this is one I hear all the time, and you may say it, and you may have heard it, and you may believe it, and you're going to hate me for saying it. But I hear it all the time. I heard it again this week. The church can never be any more godly than its pastor. Now, when I hear that, I go, oh, God, help the church. <laughs> I have never been in a church in my life in which the godliest person is a pastor. And I can tell you for sure I am not the godliest person in this place. I know that for sure. Because the godliest people are probably people you don't even know. They faithfully walk with God every day. They may be some older man or woman who spend hours just maybe just talking to God, encouraging people, writing letters, whatever they do. 
See, when we make statements like that, the, the church will never be more godly than its pastor, we say, well, whoa, what kind of body of Christ is this? We're all called to be godly. The gift of someone who has the gift of helps is no less godly than someone who stands in front of people like myself and teaches the word of God. That doesn't make me more godly than they are. The godliest people in churches probably don't even know who they are. The Bible does say that leadership is important, but the main work, the main work of a, a, an equipper is to teach the word of God and to love the people of God. That's the main task. Now, some, some time ago I was reading an article by Warren Wiersbe. If you know who he is, he's a, a well-known pastor, now quite aged, and his son, who was also a pastor. And they were describing how things had changed since Warren Wiersbe got older and his younger son became a pastor. And he said, it's a different world. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, when I became a pastor... I knew exactly what my job was. I had three tasks. I was to preach and teach the Word of God. I was to visit God's people. And I was to pray for them. And then his son spoke, or wrote, and wrote 20 things that he does, and didn't even include any of those. Don't visit the people, of course. Skip that one. Because you're a visionary, and a PR expert, and a community organizer, and on and on it went. And it basically, it was describing a businessman, not a pastor. I say to you, as you seek the next pastor for this church, please look for this. Look for a God-given giftedness with the Word of God. A God-given giftedness with the Word of God. Secondly, look for someone who loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Listen, look for someone who has a heart, a shepherd's heart for people. You cannot separate the word of God from the people of God. We're not looking just for a mind. We're looking for a heart, someone who loves the people of God. And fourth, someone who has a commitment to coach up the team, to coach us all up so that we become who God has gifted us to be. That's what we need to look for. And any people who God has prepared for that. As, as, as Dick told us this morning, we need to pray for God's will, that God would help us to find such a person. Well, when this all works together, what happens? Well, let's see. Here's what it says. Until we all reach the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, the, the, the first... Uh, the, the first characteristic of a body that's functioning as it should is that that body is, is corporately Christ-like. We become increasingly like Christ. We have the values of Christ. We do what Jesus did. That's what we become. That's the first characteristic. And then it says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So what else changes? Well, the second characteristic of a body where everyone is functioning as they should because we have people who have the gift of discernment and we have people who have the gift of teaching and we have the people who have the gift of knowledge. They know God's word. And when we use those gifts, we employ those gifts, when we tap those people, what happens? Well, we are not easily duped 
by theological fads and fancies. We won't be duped. We, we will be able to sniff out spiritual imposters and sort out doctrinal error. That's when the body functions as it should, we are not susceptible to these things. Why? Because we're doing what we're supposed to do. However, we don't. Are you familiar with the Ash Conformity Experiment? This, was, this goes back to the 1950s. What they did is they, they put a group of people into a room with one person who's kind of the stooge, unfortunately, and all the others know what's going on. And they said, we're going to bring someone into this room. They told everyone but the stooge. They said, we're going to bring someone in this room. We're going to ask them, exhibit A is most like which of the following lines, A, B, or C. Now, when I ask that question, say C or B. Do not say A. So they did that. And so the stooge now comes into the room, and they, they ask the stooge last. They say, um, which of these lines uh, in exhibit A is, which of the lines A, B, and C in exhibit A 2 is most like exhibit 1? And the person would say, um, C. No, B. No, B. B, 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 C. And the stooge is looking. And this is the real one. These are the people. And one-third of the people said the wrong one. Now, look at that. Is it obvious or is that obvious? But one-third of the people will even doubt their very eyes because of the pressure of peers. We are incredibly susceptible to peer pressure. But that's part of the problem, is we are susceptible to peer pressure, but not when the body of Christ is doing what it's supposed to do. Not when we're using the gifts that God has planted into us. Not when, when equippers are equipping people. We're not susceptible in the same way to the theological fads and fancies that we have all around us. We don't become like that. Instead, what do we do? We, we tell each other the truth. The words here in Greek are simply, we truthing in love. Then we grow up into all things, into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. That's who we are. God has great expectations for us. He says each and every single one of us has been graced to serve with the gifts he's given to us. Everyone. So our job is... Use it. How do you find out what gift you have? Don't. Some tests might help, but do things. You'll find out what you, what you like to do. And you'll probably find that God enables you to do it. And then some people are called to equip others, but we're all expected to mature. Well, let me tell you a story about animals. I'll end with this. This is a, a story about uh, once upon a time, there was a, a group of animals, and they decided that they needed more education. And so they just organized an animal school. And they adopted a curriculum, and the curriculum was composed of running and climbing and swimming and flying. And they decided that since those were all important means of getting around, that all the animals should take the same curriculum. Now, the duck. The duck was an excellent swimmer. In fact, he was better than the instructor by far. However, he was not real good at flying, and he was really bad at running. And so, since the duck was so bad at running, they decided to focus the duck's curriculum on running to make him faster. Now, the rabbit. The rabbit was really good at running, but not good at swimming and terrible at flying. And so they focused his curriculum on swimming and flying. Now, the squirrel. 
could really climb and occasionally could fly a little bit, but um, not a real good swimmer. And so, of course, that curriculum had to focus on swimming. Now, when it came to the eagle, eagle that was the, the, the student that was um, really in trouble. So the eagle couldn't fly. They clipped its wings and had to just run. That was what they did with the eagle. Now, at the end of the animal school, at the end of the semester, they evaluated all the animals, and guess what? They were all worse than when they began. And the moral of the story is, turning talent into performance requires letting your squirrels climb, ducks swim, eagles fly, and of course, letting your rabbits run. In other words, focus on your strengths. God made you who you are because you're good at something. Why? Because he has given you, Jesus gave you grace so that you could do this well. Do it well for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus coming down to this earth. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. Thank you for rising again. Thank you for ascending. Thank you for having come back again through the Holy Spirit and graced us with gifts. Oh, Father, may your Holy Spirit deeply convince every person here that they are specially endowed by Jesus. May we together as a body utilize those gifts not in a competitive way, but in a way that builds up one another. May we just enjoy what you've put inside of us. May this body be wise, discerning in every way. May you provide in your good time a, a marvelous equipper who walks among this body as one of them. And may you make this body mature so that we're just like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to enable you to stand before God's glorious presence, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forevermore. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>